Uh, we've just left Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, which has thus far been designed really to show believers positively how we must live and do righteous deeds so that we will be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, today, as we proceed into Matthew chapter 6, we're going to see negatively what we must not do so that we don't become like the scribes and the Pharisees. Dear ones, the scribes and the Pharisees are depicted in the New Testament as those who live hypocritical lives because they do their righteous deeds not to get the praise of God, but to be rewarded merely by men. So today, Jesus is going to challenge us, his followers, to be different. That we are going to be the people who seek not the rewards of man, but to please God and be rewarded by him. That's the high calling again that we see here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now today, because we are beginning a new section, I thought it might be helpful to give you a little bit of an outline to show you where we are going in Matthew chapter 6. And I want to begin by showing you, I think the overarching principle is found today in verse 1. And the overarching principle is, again, that we are to practice our righteousness to please God, not man. And I want you to think about how this is a theme that we see in both the Old and the New Testament. In fact, think about Proverbs 1-7, where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Meaning that if you fear man, you're going to live to please them. But if you fear God, you're going to live to please him. And again, we're called to do the latter. So every other subsection now is built off of this principle. So, for example, we'll also be covering today verses 2 through 4, where we learn that we are to give not to get from men. After all, we don't give to get, but rather we give. Why? Because we love the Lord our God, we love our neighbors ourselves, and we do for God's reward, not for man's. The section that we're going to come to next time begins as verses 5 through 6 of Matthew 6, where we see that we are not to pray in order to be seen by men. Why do we pray? Because God really does hear from heaven and acts and intercedes on our behalf in real time for our good. That's what we learn in Hebrews 4.16. Now, tied to that, in verses 7 through 13, will be Jesus' model prayer. Notice I call it his model prayer. To me, technically, the Lord's prayer is found better in John 17, where Jesus prays as he intercedes on our behalf. But here is his model prayer on how you and I ought to pray. And tied to that then, in verses 14 through 15, is this idea of forgiveness. Because you and I have been forgiven, we ought to be those who forgive. And you know what? That pleases God. And then finally, or not finally, I guess, second to last section, verses 16 through 18 we, not, we are not to fast in order to be noticed by man, but rather to seek God. Now, I'm going to be showing, by the way, in that section, I don't believe fasting is ever commanded of the New Covenant Christian. Jesus, recall, is still teaching those who are under the Old Covenant. So I'll be laying that out. You, you're free to fast if you want to, but I don't see a clear command that we have to under the New Covenant. But then we come to the final section, verses 19 through 21, where we are to store our treasure in heaven. And that, again, ties us back to the original theme. Let me pull up my pointer. we practice our righteousness to please God, not man. Brothers and sisters, if you and I live for the rewards of man, we're going to be those who just please man here and now. We'll be those who compromise. But if you and I live to please God, our rewards will be from him, 
And you and I will not compromise in our doctrine and in our deed. Now, with that, let's turn then to the very first verse here in verse 1, where we see that Christ here is going to give us this prefatory statement of the section we've just seen outlined. Notice what he says. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now, I first want you to notice here in the box the term beware. The term beware there, prosecco, is an imperative. This is a command. But interestingly, Jesus gives this command three other times in the book of Matthew where he wants us to beware of others. So, for example, in Matthew seven fifteen, we are to beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Therefore, we are to beware of others. Uh, we are to beware in Matthew ten seventeen of men who will hand us over to the synagogues, who will have us scourged. They'll bring us to the courts. We are to beware of others. When we get to Matthew sixteen six, Jesus wants us to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That means of their teaching, so we're to be aware of others. But here, isn't it interesting that in Matthew 6, he begins with us being aware of ourselves. That in keeping with our sin nature, you and I often would want the praises and accolades of men. And so he's wanting us to be aware of that. Beware of practicing your righteous deeds for what? To be noticed by men. Now, notice here when he says practicing, that's a good rendering of the verb poieo, which means to do. But the reason why I think the New American Standard Bible should be congratulated here is here you have a present tense verb. Practicing gets the idea of ongoing action. So we are not to practice, make a habit of making our righteous deeds be seen by men. Now, what are these righteous deeds that he is referring to here? Well, I think it's synonymous with what we see in Matthew 5.16 to be your good works. That is, good works that Christ has commanded us to do from the Scripture. Good deeds, good doctrines, the things that we are to be about. Now, let me read Matthew 5.16 because I think, again, it's synonymous. That's where Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, what I'm claiming is roughly your good works is synonymous with your righteousness. Now, another reason I want you to see Matthew 5.16 in juxtaposition here is some scholars and critics of the Bible, they have claimed that there is a contradiction between Matthew 5.16 and Matthew 6.1. Why? Well, in Matthew 6.1, we are not to practice our works or righteousness before men. But Matthew 5.16, we are to do it before men. Now, is there a discrepancy that's irreconcilable? I don't think so. I think, obviously, Matthew 5.16 assumes that we have the right motives when we do our good works. In fact, we are to do them not to be noticed or rewarded, ultimately, but to, be glor- to glorify our Father who is in heaven. Okay, so in other words, there's no discrepancy. Matthew 5.16 is assuming that when you do your good works, your deeds of righteousness... It's not to bring glory to yourself, but to God. That's the idea that I think we certainly see here. Now, the other thing I'm going to show you is that in context with the passage Jesus is teaching today, I think the acts of righteousness he's referring to specifically is giving to the poor. The idea that, yes, we are called to be generous to those who are poor. And I say that because in Jesus' day, 
there were many Jews that I think believed that giving to the poor was one of the greatest things you can do. In fact, I'm going to cite to you a, a book that's not scriptural that was written in that intertestamental period, that 400-year window between the time of Malachi and the time of the coming of John the Baptist. Bob had mentioned this today in our Sunday school, that during that 400-year window, which we call the intertestamental period, even the Israelites recognized there was no prophet in Israel. So there was no scripture. And so I'm going to cite to you an apocryphal work, not because it's from the scriptures, but because it gives us an inkling or a hint as to how some of the Jews may have been thinking that Jesus was interacting with here on the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, remember when we call this an apocryphal book, it means it's hidden. The Catholics call it Deuterocanonical, a second canon. They think it's scripture, they are wrong. Now, how do we know that they're wrong? Well, because according to the Apostle Paul, the Jews had the very scriptures of God. We see that in Romans 3. Did the Israelites ever accept the apocryphal works? No. And if Paul the Apostle says they had the very scriptures of God and they didn't contain the apocryphal works, then they should be rejected. Not so says Eric Dalma, but according to the Apostle Paul. But let me say to you, Tobit 12.8, listen to their thinking in this intertestamental period, which I think would flow even into the time of Christ. It says, it is better, this is Tobit 12.8, quote, it is better to give to charity than to lay up gold. For charity will save a man from death. It will atone any sin, unquote. It will atone for sin. And the reason I mention this is this, I think, may explain why in Jesus' day, Jews are falling all over themselves to be noticed as they give to the poor. Why? Because they want to show themselves to be those who are the saved. It ends up being an elitist type of thing. Now, if we do our good works for the purpose of being noticed by man, notice we don't have any reward, Jesus says, from our Father who is in heaven. Yes, we have maybe rewards from men now, but that's fleeting. That's only temporary. It's going to fade away. But dear ones, if you and I do our works out of love for God, love for neighbor, and because you and I want to be rewarded in his kingdom, then we have an eternal reward. If we do our works in order to be seen by men, it's only fleeting the rewards that we will have. That's the idea that Jesus is driving at. And so now we see that we are to be those who give not to be seen, but those who give in secret so that we are rewarded by our God who sees in secret. Matthew 6, 2 through 4. Jesus says, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, dear ones, notice here Jesus begins with an inference. Notice the so. You could render it therefore or thus. It's un, and it shows us now he's drawing an inference from the principle that we ought to please and want to be rewarded by God rather than man. So now he gives us an example of what that looks like. So when you give to the poor, and that again ties into the righteous deeds I think he has in mind, in Matthew 6, 1. Now, giving to the poor in and of itself is a good thing. In fact, I'm going to have you turn your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy 15, 
verses 7 through 8. The reason I want you to turn there is I want you to see that the Jews knew from the Old Covenant that God had called them to give to the poor. The reason this is important is it shows us the issue isn't giving to the poor. That's good. The issue at hand is the motivation in doing so. Do we give to be noticed and rewarded by men? Or do we give in order to be noticed and rewarded by God? That's the issue at stake. So again, Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 through 8. I hope you've turned there. Notice here, Moses spoke the words of the Lord. He said, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns in the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. So clearly, it was a command to give to the poor under the Old Covenant. And by the way, I think this is implied under the New Covenant as well. Remember, the Apostle Paul says that he was also eager to give to the poor in Galatians 2.10. So both under the Old and the New Covenant, it is a good thing, it is a good work to give to the poor. But again, the issue is why do we give? Do we give out of love of neighbor, love of God, and to be rewarded by God? Or do we do it to be noticed by men? Now, notice here, Jesus does not want us, therefore, to give to the poor as the hypocrites do. Remember, what is the hypocrite? The hypocrite is literally the play actor on stage. They dress up in a you know, very um, beautiful garments. They dress up in ways that show themselves to be something far different than they are in reality. That's the idea of the hypocrite. The hypocrite then theologically is one who professes but doesn't possess. That's the idea. And so notice the hypocrite is the one when they give, they sound the trumpet, whether it is in the synagogues or whether it is on the street. Now, this raises a question. Is this sounding of the trumpet to be noticed when they give? Is that literal or is it figurative? I think this is probably figurative. In all the research that I've done, I've been looking at these New Testament background commentaries where they focus on the culture. I can't see any evidence that the Jews, whether on the synagogues or the streets, would actually blow trumpets prior to them giving. Uh, Some have claimed it may resemble the sound of the coins that they threw into these coffers that may have looked trumpet-like, but I think that that's probably stretching it. Here I think Jesus is probably using a form of hyperbole, overstatement, that these men, these hypocrites, go out of their way to be noticed. In fact, that statement, to toot your own horn, is that not still with us today? How many times, I know I've used it, hey, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but wasn't I right when I said the Vikings would lose miserably or win or what have you? That's the idea, is we still use it today. And so I think clearly it is a form of overstatement. Think of overstatement or hyperbole when you're a kid. How many in here ever left the door open? You run out to play football or play with your neighborhood kids. You leave the door open and your parents say, hey, were you born in a barn? They're using overstatement to drive home the point. Hey, don't be so sloppy. Why don't you close the door? In the same way, Jesus is using this hyperbole to say, hey, these guys are stepping all over themselves trying to be noticed. They're literally tooting their own horn. Now, further evidence that I think this is hyperbole. I think we see more hyperbole here in verse 3. Notice, this is how we should give. How should we give as believers? 
that are following Christ. He says, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand, notice in red, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now let's ask ourselves, is it technically possible to not know what your left or your right hand is doing or your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing and vice versa? Is that possible? Probably not. Probably not. So the idea is you're so secretive, it's as if your left hand doesn't know what your right hand's doing. Now, tied to this may be a concept that Jesus is driving at, that you and I should be so accustomed in our lifestyle that we give not to be seen, but in secret to be rewarded by God, that it's as if we become so used to that, giving in secret that we don't really know what we're doing. We just give secretly. It's the idea of muscle memory. Let me give you an analogy. When a pro baseball player has to hit an 88-mile-per-hour splitter, do they have to cognitively think about, hey, I got my hand placement on the bat. I got to start getting my weight shifted in my stance. I got to start... No, they just do it by muscle memory. All the, the fundamentals are already there. So the idea is they just use their muscle memory in the same way you and I are to be so used to giving in secret that that just becomes part of our life. That we live in such a way where we're never trying to be noticed. We're just those who give because we love the Lord our God. We love our neighbor. And we want to be rewarded not from men, but by God. That's the idea. Now, what is the ultimate purpose for giving in this way in which we are not noticed by men? Notice you have a purpose statement. Verse 4, notice the so that. Here's the purpose for us giving not to be noticed, but so that God only knows It's so that your giving will be in secret. Notice the term secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Dear ones, our giving in secret implies that only God can know. And implied in that is that this is a great act of faith. Why? Because if you are giving in such a way that only God knows, implied is you trust that there is a God who will reward you in the last day. And so this is a great act of faith, intent on pleasing not men, but God. By the way, I'm going to show you this in our application. I promise it's on my last slide. Notice the term secret comes from crypto. What's very interesting about that term is it's also used in Romans 2.29. Remember, Paul talks about the true Jew. The true Jew is the one who was what? Really pleasing to God. The true Jew, remember Paul says, is not one who was outwardly but one who is inwardly crypto, that means secretly. Not noticed by men with an outward circumcision, but noticed by God with an inward circumcision. Circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the heart which leads to faith, which leads to what? Not living to please man, but living to please God. Dear ones, what Jesus is calling us to in this passage is to be that true Jew who gives not to be rewarded by men, but to have the eternal reward that comes from God. Okay, now with that, let me turn to a couple of points of application that I think flow from this text. Number one, we must learn to live for rewards in the future kingdom that are currently unseen rather than current rewards that can be seen. What I'm going to show you is that fundamentally living for the future reward is a faith issue. It's about trusting in the promises of God, just as Bob has been laying out for this congregation for 30, 40 years. 
It's living. So it's a faith issue. That's the issue. If you and I are going to live to be rewarded by God rather than men, it's a faith issue. All right, number two, we must learn to please God rather than men. Dear one, so I'm going to show you as Jesus, of course, is concerned with our ultimate reward. Where is it going to come from, men, which is temporal, or God, which is eternal? But I'm also going to show you other places in the Scriptures will show us that if you and I are going to live in order to please men, we will compromise in both doctrine and deed here and now. That's another element to this living to please God rather than man. Okay, let's begin with the first one. Dear ones, I'm claiming that believers, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, are in a unique position to know from the Bible our great reward is coming in the future. This great promise of ours that's coming in the future cannot be seen or tangibly felt here and now. And so the only way we know of it is by believing the promises of God in the Scriptures. It's a faith issue. It's an issue of believing the promises of God. That's how you and I will live for the rewards of God rather than man. Now, one passage that I think very succinctly states this is found in Romans 8, 24 and 25. Remember, in Romans 8, that is the section of Scripture where Paul, Paul talks about life for the Christian in the Spirit and how you and I as believers in Christ can have absolute assurance of the future promises. Notice what he says. Romans eight twenty four through 25, he says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. I want you to focus for just a moment on this term hope that you see highlighted in blue. There's two things that I want to lay out for you regarding this hope. Number one, hope is certain. It's certain. And number two, hope is synonymous with saving faith directed towards the future promises of God. So let me give you those two categories again. What we want to see regarding hope is when it concerns the promises of God, it is certain, number one. Number two, it is synonymous with saving faith oriented towards the future promises. Okay, so let me start building the case. First of all, the term hope, it comes from the term elpis. And this is one of my favorites. I got to share this with you. I can't let this go. I remembered it from seminary. You know how I remember it? Because elpis sounded to me like Elvis. And I thought to myself, and I thought, and I thought, I thought, aha, people hope that Elvis is still alive. So I have to have little mental gymnastics to remember things because my memory isn't that good. Elpis, dear ones, the idea of biblical hope is different often than you, how you and I use hope in the American vernacular. When we use the term hope, we often have a sense of contingency placed upon it. Um, I hope the Vikings can beat the Packers today. <laughs> Probably a fat chance of that happening, right? I hope I don't get audited. I hope my children do well in school. There's always kind of this sense of contingency. The, the idea of biblical hope and the promises of God is the idea that it is certain. It is certain. Why? Because according to Hebrews 6.18, we have a God who cannot lie who is given these promises. So don't think of the idea of hope as, well, I hope this is a sense of contingency. No, it's a certain thing. It is a certain thing. Just as God was faithful to his promises in the past, he's going to be faithful to the promises in the future. The second part of hope that I want you to see here 
is that, again, it is future-oriented. It is synonymous with saving faith, but it's oriented towards the future promises. Think of it this way. Doesn't Paul say here, for in hope we have been saved? Well, doesn't he say in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith? Well, so which is it? Is it by faith we've been saved or is it by hope? Well, you can see that they're synonymous. The emphasis on hope is on the future promises. And so the idea is not just that I was saved by what Christ has done. That's absolutely essential, his finished work, but also by what he is going to do. After all, what good is the forgiveness of sins that he accomplished for us at the first advent? If you and I are just nothing more than so much worm food in the ground and we never experience the blessing, we never experience the resurrection and the glories of the future kingdom. And so notice here then, hope has to be synonymous with faith, oriented towards the future. But after that, Paul says something I think ties into our message today in Matthew 6. He says, but hope that is seen is not hope. Okay, so let's tie that into what we learned today. Today, in our passage, we learn that we have to live for the rewards of God, not men. Is that right? So the idea is that if you live by sight, what is seen here and now, the idea in the Bible is you're living for the rewards of men, the rewards that are now that are tangible. But if you live by faith, trusting in the promises of God, you're living for what can't be seen, but that which is real and that which is eternal. And all of the promises that you, you and I are longing for are going to come about at the second coming of Christ. That's where they're going to be inaugurated and brought to fruition. In fact, we see evidence of that. Notice here, Paul says, but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. That phrase, wait eagerly, apodecami, is used in many a passages in the New Testament regarding our longing and our waiting for the second coming of Christ. That's where this hope will find its fulfillment, at the second coming. In fact, turn your Bibles to Philippians 3.20. Turn your Bibles to Philippians 3.20. I want you to see a passage in which apodecami is used again, waiting for the second coming of Christ. Philippians 3.20. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Notice here what Paul says. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice, where is our Lord and Savior? He's in heaven from where he's coming again. That's what we're waiting for. By the way, this is very similar to the passage Steve read today, that John 14, 1 through 3, which I believe is a rapture passage. Why? Because Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Where was Jesus going? To heaven. And he says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming again to receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, 1 through 3, Philippians 3, 20, Romans 8, 25 is not about us dying and going to be with the Lord, but about him coming to us and bringing all of the glories, the resurrection and all of the promises to fruition. That's what it's about. Now, we see Paul talk about living for what is unseen rather than seen in other places. Notice 2 Corinthians 4.18. Paul says, "For he says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Brothers and sisters, that's the point that Jesus is making today. If you and I are going to live to be seen by man, 
for the rewards that are seen or tangible now, it's temporal, it's not going to last. That's what you see in red, 2 Corinthians 4.18. But if you and I will live and live to be noticed only by God, we're living for a reward that is what? It's eternal. It's never going to go away. Brothers and sisters, saving faith that leads to this unseen reward is not just that Christ came, but saving faith is that Christ is coming again. If someone denies the future promises that Christ is coming again, they're not a believer. They're a heretic. The good news of the gospel is not just that Christ came. That's essential, but it's that he's coming again. That's the gospel. And if we don't believe this future reward, what are we going to live for? If we don't believe that it's really going to happen, we'll live to get all we can here and now. It's human nature. We'll live for the rewards of men. Now, as I'm saying that you and I, therefore, are living not for that which is seen, but the unseen, don't make the mistake that I am claiming that somehow faith, biblically, is a blind leap into the dark, as many have said in the past, like Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard, I really don't care for his teachings. His claim is that saving faith is a blind leap in the dark with no evidence at all. And he would appeal to passages like living for the unseen rather than the seen. That is not the notion of biblical faith. Biblical faith, yes, has evidence. Evidence based on the character of God revealed in the Scriptures. Again, as God has made promises in the past and literally fulfilled them, therefore we know that he's good to keep his promises for the future. For example, wasn't it promised 740 years roughly prior to the birth of Christ in Micah 5.2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? Where was Messiah born? In Bethlehem. Isaiah 53, written 715 years prior to the birth of Christ, talks about how the Christ would suffer, that he would be crushed for our iniquities, that he'd be pierced through for our transgressions, accurately depicting the atonement that he would bring about. It literally came to pass. And so that's the idea of biblical faith, based on the evidence of who God is from the Scriptures, that he's a promise-keeping God. And so that's why, for example, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, notice the writer of Hebrews clarifies what saving faith is. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Notice the term assurance, hypostasis, is that which provides the basis for trust, the basis for faith. So the idea is there's evidence. In fact, the term here, elenkos, conviction, could literally be rendered evidence. You could literally say, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What evidence? Predictive prophecy. We have evidence within the scriptures or object of faith themselves that indeed these promises are true. All right, think about one of my favorite prophecies, Ezekiel 26. Do you know in Ezekiel chapter 26, God accurately predicted the destruction of Tyre 254 years in advance? Let me explain a little bit of how this prophecy works so that Perhaps our unbelievers listening to this, it may give you a sense of what we have, the majesty in the scriptures. In Ezekiel chapter 26, is very profound because it's dated to 586 B.C. We know when it was written. So in this prophecy, it's so specific that God actually says many nations would come against Tyre. 
Tyre had two portions to it, a mainland portion along the Mediterranean and an island portion in the Mediterranean. And the reason God wanted to judge them is because they helped the Babylonians sack Jerusalem. They had teamed up with the Babylonians against the people of God, Israel. And so God promises many nations would come. Well, sure enough, the Babylonians went against them eventually. The Medo-Persians went against them. But what's very interesting, if you look at Ezekiel 26, 12, the prophecy is so specific that not only would there be many nations come against it, but it's so specific that it says the debris, its rock and its timbers, would be thrown into the water. Now, that's very specific. And so you say, well, wait a minute. The Babylonians never did that. The Persians never did that. Oh, but Alexander the Great did. In the year 332, 254 years after, Alexander the Great marches on Tyre, and he is so angry because 8,000 of his soldiers fell in battle to the people of Tyre. So he wants to get out to the island and kill all of them. He wants to smite the island. But you know what? There's water in the way, so do you know what he does, being the genius he was? He scrapes all of their debris, the rock and the timber, into the water, building a causeway, just as the word of God had said, Ezekiel 26, 12, 254 years in advance. That's the power of the scriptures. That's the evidence that you have. Isaiah 45, 1, doesn't God call Cyrus by name 180 years prior to his birth? He does. That's the power that we have. A faith that's not built on just fanciful thinking or just taking a blind leap but based on the evidence in the scriptures. And so, dear ones, this is what we are to live for. We are to live by faith for the future promises, but a faith that has evidence, a faith built on the evidence that God has given us. And so this is how, when you follow the, the book of, the, of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, you look at how did these saints of old persevere longing for the promises and living for the rewards of God rather than men? Well, they did so by believing and trusting in the future promises. Think about Abraham. Abraham was a sojourner through the land of Israel, never owned one part of the land. And wasn't it promised in the early chapters of Genesis? Genesis 13 through 15, God promised that Abraham would have a land and a kingdom that would go from the Nile to the Euphrates in the land of the Chaldeans. And yet he only owned one little sliver of the land the cave at Machpelah, to bury his wife. So the question then is, how could he stand it? If he didn't have reward that he could see here and now in the land, how could he do it? The book of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 11.10, it says that he was looking for a city that had foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for the promises. That's how he did it. Look at what it says of Moses. It's a faith issue. It says, by faith. Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Can you imagine the accolades of men, the gifts of men that he passed up not being Pharaoh's son? It's powerful. But he was looking for the greater reward, the reward that comes from Christ. That's the idea. He was looking by faith to the future reward. Dear brothers and sisters, how about you? 
What reward are you ultimately living for? Are you living for what you can see here and now, building up the 401k? Get a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. By the way, it's not bad to build up a 401k. It's probably not going to be very easy now, but we, it, it's okay to do that. But the idea is that we're living for it. Is that where our trust is? No, dear ones, it has to be in the future promises of God. Now, let me come to my second point. I think the main point Christ is making today, and that is we learn today from Jesus that we should be those who give in secret to be noticed by him rather than to please men. Now, as I say that we should not live to please men, don't misunderstand me in in thinking that the Bible's telling us that we should be unloving towards other people. No, we are called by the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our being and love our neighbors ourselves. Also, when it says that we should not please men, it doesn't mean that we are to be needlessly provocative or offensive to other men and women. No, in fact, we should try to limit the amount of offense that we have in our lives. Let the gospel be the only offense if we could help it. So what I am claiming, though, is that Jesus is saying, hey, live to please God rather than man. Why? Because your eternal reward comes from God. But I also want you to see elsewhere in the scriptures that if you and I live to please men rather than God, it'll lead to compromise in doctrine and deed in our life every time. If you live to please man rather than God, it will lead to compromise and sin in your life. Now, let me give you an illustration of this from Galatians. But before I put up the passage, I want you to think about how in Galatians 1, Paul talks about he's not going to try to please man but God. What was he up against? Well, he's up against Judaizers who are saying that faith alone in Christ alone is not sufficient. Well, Paul maintains that faith alone in Christ alone will justify you. But the Judaizers are saying, no, it's not Christ alone. It's Christ plus circumcision plus this, plus this, plus this. Well, then do we have a Savior? No. So Paul is focusing on grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. And so he has to stand for the truth. And it's not popular among these fellow Jews. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Stop there. What's the obvious answer to that rhetorical question? God. That's what he's living for, to, to please God. Or am I striving to please men? The obvious answer is no. He says, he says in the red there, If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you and I live in this life to please men, and you see it in business, you see it in family life, you'll see it in society. When men and women live to please man, it leads to compromise in doctrine and deed. And if you and I do that, we will no longer be bond servants of Christ, but rather servants of men in this world. And turn your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians 1.9. I'll show you another example of this. Colossians 1.9. And then I'll put up verse 10 on the screen. Please turn your Bibles to Colossians 1.9. Here Paul wants us to be filled with the knowledge of God's moral will. He'll explain why. Colossians 1.9. I hope you've turned there. Notice here, Paul says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, that is their salvation, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Notice he says now in verse 10 on the screen, so that, there's the purpose, 
so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The purpose of growing in the knowledge of God through the scriptures is for what purpose? To please him in all respects. Not to please man, but to please God. Let me make an analogy, if you don't mind. I Notice this term, walk, peripateo. The idea of walking in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. The idea of walking, think about it as the way we live out our faith. And the analogy that always comes to my mind is that of the Exodus. Think about the relationship between the old covenant people and us. Think about Israel. They began in their Exodus by faith. By faith, they apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their home so that they are passed over. By faith, they apply the blood. They could have said, ah, we don't believe that. That's, that's not going to work and just walked away and be destroyed. They're firstborn. But by faith, they apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their home. They are passed over. And then what happens is they start walking it out in the exodus and into the wilderness. And the idea is, as they walk, are they going to please God and live for him and press on to the promised land? Or are they going to live to please man and go back to Egypt and fall? And as you know the story, many of them did fall. You and I began our journey with Christ by faith. We applied the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of our life. And we started walking on the great final exodus. As you and I are walking towards the promised land, we are walking this faith out. We're going through the wilderness. And the idea is, are we going to live to please God and press on to the promised land? Or will we live to please man and fall in the wilderness like they did? That's really a way of thinking about it, that we walk it out, that we walk in a way that's pleasing to God, not because we're saved by works, but because you always act on what you truly believe. Notice here, Paul says something very similar. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. He says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Notice in blue, dear brothers and sisters, you and I ought to walk and live to please God, not men. And what Jesus is telling us today is that if you and I live and walk our walk to please him, we're going to have an eternal reward. But if you and I walk to please man, a temporary reward and a compromise with God. That's the idea that we see in the scriptures. Let me give you another example from the scriptures of a man who walked with no compromise I think he's one to emulate. Do you remember in the book of Daniel? Daniel is never seen really as compromising his walk with the Lord. And remember in Daniel chapter 2, in fact, in verse 3, Daniel is going to be elevated to the highest position in all of Babylon. He is going to be made by the king to be the ruler, the, the numero uno head cheese number one guy. That's a long way of describing he's in charge. Well, as that would happen, you could imagine that he might try to get accolades from men and might get some people who want to serve him, and he'd be tempted by those things. Well, remember that there was also men in Babylon who were very jealous of him, these 
under governors under the king. And so they set up a scheme by which they're going to trap Daniel, knowing that Daniel was a man who would not compromise, that he would only serve God to please God rather than men. So if you remember, the trap was that these under governors, they said, well, hey, let's make an ordinance and have the king sign it that for 30 days, no one in the kingdom can serve anyone or worship anyone other than the king. Now, why did they set that up? Because they knew Daniel wouldn't compromise, that he lived to please God, not men. And what's so interesting is if you read the story, Daniel learns of the decree and does he go home and pray about it? And think, you know, what about this decree? What am I going to do about it? He immediately goes home and worships the Lord, as was his custom. Why? Because he learned to please God, not man. And remember what happened, of course, the men who set up the scheme, they knew he would do that. They were waiting for him. They have him arrested, and he's thrown into the lion's den. Of course, as the story goes, he's delivered from the lion's den. But the point is, whether he was delivered or he was not delivered, Daniel was going to live to please God and not men. Brothers and sisters, this is very convicting to me, and I pray that it is to you, because I know we often say, I just want to please God, not men, but there are aspects of life where we start to say, hey, you know what, I'd really like to be appreciated with this, or I want this accolade, that accolade, and I want to ask you today, think about it in your own life, in the areas of business, family life, financial dealings, Whatever it may be, is there an area in which, truth be told, you've been living to please man rather than God? Today is the day to turn from that. Today is the day to say, yes, again, I want to be like Daniel. I want to be those who live for the future promises, who live to please God, not man. That's the high calling that I think Jesus is calling us to today. Now, let me leave you with this. I had promised that I was going to show you the relationship between Romans 2.29 and Matthew 6.4 with this term kruptos or secret. Please turn your Bibles, if you will, again to Matthew 6.4, and we'll end on this. Matthew 6.4, please turn your Bibles there. Now remember, as you're turning to Matthew 6.4, we we read this today. Matthew 6.4 is the purpose statement. Why is it that you and I should be those who give not to be seen? Matthew 6.4 tells us. Matthew 6, 4, it says, the reason we should give not to be seen by men is so that your, notice it says, so that your giving will be in secret, kruptos, and your father who sees what is done in secret, kruptos, he will reward you. The idea is we give because we have faith that God sees what we do. That's the idea. Now, let me show you Romans 2, 28 through 29. Very interesting. Paul said, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Very interestingly, notice here the term inwardly is the term kruptos. So notice the true Jew. And by the way, what is the true Jew? The true Jew is the one who really pleases God the one who's really a believer, the one who really has the promises, the one who's really going to the kingdom. That's the true Jew. Notice, it's not the one who has the outward circumcision that men can see, but the circumcision of the heart, which leads to faith in Christ, that only God can see. The idea is the true Jew is one who is 
secretly. And notice where his praises do. His praises, therefore, come from men? No, it's not from men, but it's from God. That's exactly what Jesus was teaching us today. Brothers and sisters, let us be those who go out the door today and live as the true Jew. Not to be rewarded by men, but to be rewarded by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us words to convict us when we're wrong. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be a people by your grace and power who live not to please men, but rather simply to please you and to have your reward. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would do that. Give us faith. Give us boldness, Lord, in the weeks and months and years ahead. As long as you tarry, Lord, and as long as we're here, that we would have the gospel upon our lips, that you would prepare by your spirit the hearts of those that we preach before us so that others may also hear, whether it's our coworkers, whether it's our friends or family. Lord, we pray that they would hear the gospel and that they also would believe and that they would live lives not to please men but to, to please you. We pray that you would do that for us and through us, all for the sake of your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.